welcome to this episode of Psycho, which is the podcast for uh, the psychology department at Edinburgh University. Uh, one of the main reasons why we wanted to start this podcast was to be able to interview the many guests that we have to our department. And so today uh, we're going to do that. And we have in the studio uh, today a visiting academic, Julia Glombievsky from Landau University in Germany. Uh, we're also joined by Associate Professor Ida Flink, uh, who's a staff member here. And Leo is here as always, as the producer. <laughs> um, so I guess we just start off by uh, getting you to tell us a little bit about yourself. So maybe your background. And I know that the university you come from apparently has warm weather and lots of wine. Yes, that's true. That's so, enough for me. Let's just go there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, no, not everybody knows it, but in Germany, there's a quite large uh, wine country. Um, it's in the south of Germany, and mm. that's where Landau is. So we have beautiful weather and lots and lots of wine. Mm. And uh, maybe the difference to Erebro is that the spring starts very early and mm. it's very sunny and we have a long and warm autumn. So it's yeah. a very, very nice region. And Lando is a small city at the uh, edge of big forest and we have a, a small but very nice university there and a great psychology department. Yeah. And uh, you work, amongst other things, in the area of exposure therapy for pain. Yes, I do. Um, and... How long have you been at Landau University in your current... You're a professor? Yes, I'm a, a professor since one year, mm -hmm. uh, so it's fresh. Mm -hmm. And I've been there since uh, one year and a half uh, now. Yes, okay. about one year. And before, I've been at uh, Marburg University. Yeah. It's in the middle of Germany. And I believe you started off as a clinician. Yes, yeah. yes. So I got interested in research because I started working with patients um, and uh, pain patients have been my first patients in my career as a clinician. Mm -hmm. And I got really interested in um, psychological pain treatment. And then I discovered that there's so much to do about it, that there's uh, compared to maybe anxiety research or OCD research or depression and uh, we don't know that much about psychological aspects of chronic pain. And uh, that's why I felt as a clinician that uh, I would like to do something about that. And that's why I decided to uh, go for my PhD. So you were a clinician first and then you went and did a PhD? Yes, for, for a short period of mm -hmm. time, like half a year maybe. I was working in a pain clinic. Okay. And, and it sent you straight back to university. Exactly. <laughs> After being there for half a year, I thought, yeah. oh, no, that can't be all. <laughs> there must be more about uh, how to treat chronic pain. So I was a bit disappointed about treatments we had mm. and about the whole system of rehabilitation of pain in, in Germany. And um, I got very interested in doing more research about it. And fortunately, it was close to Marburg, my former professor, uh, offered me a position then to just to do that. Okay. Um, and you're here visiting us. Uh, you have some collaborations with Ida uh, yes. and Stephen Linton, who's a professor here. I should just mention here that Ida, you have the honour of being one of the people that was first enrolled as a student here. I think you're in the first cohort from the program. Yes, I was. So you've gone from being the first student to oh, well, now you're an associate professor. Yeah, so yeah, that's right. Right from the bottom to the top. Yeah, <laughs> I, I haven't left the university yet. <laughs> at least you left the university for half a year. I haven't left it at all. <laughs> so yeah, that's true. And and uh, right now Julia is here, and we are discussing how to. Uh, to combine our data around the, the exposure treatments, mm -hmm. because we have also been working with exposure treatments here yes. uh, at CHAMP. 
Yeah, not also. I uh, should correct that. So Stephen Linton has been one of the very first who really took care of uh, psychological pain treatments. He developed very important models uh, that has been very influential for, for decades now. Mm. So when I started doing my research, I uh, found out that uh, Stephen Linton is one of the heroes of the psychological pain <laughs> research. And for me, it's very special to be here now, to be invited and to uh, yeah to talk a bit more and to learn from, from the group, from them and from everyone. Maybe you could give us a little bit of background on, on psychological treatment for pain. So... Um, you have a presentation earlier today and you mentioned that uh, initially people uh, were using a very much a medical model approach uh, and then Stephen and Johan produced a pain avoidance model. Yes. What was? Can you sort of take us back to that scenario? What was going on there at that time? Mm-hmm. Shall I? <laughs> yeah, I, I would just say that people are still using a very medical yeah. model of pain, mm. I would say. Yeah. So that's true, like uh, in the field, as we call it. So mm. out there, the medical uh, pain model is still popular. Mm. Um, I think it's changing a bit due to yeah, podcasts like this or mm. articles. They're more and more uh, emphasizing the importance of uh, psychological factors in, in pain, which means that they are also important for treatment. But it's a slow change mm. and uh, the treatment of pain often starts with a, a medical model and then... Uh, sometimes the doctors get frustrated uh, with their patients and this is the first time that they mention that there might be also psychological factors mm. affecting chronic pain, which is um, not the right moment to say it when you're angry with your patient maybe or when yeah. you feel like you're frustrated by the treatment that is not working and then you say, oh, maybe you need a psychologist, maybe you're depressed. Mm-hmm. That's sometimes hurting patients because then they feel that uh, they are not taken seriously. Mm. So in the process of working with chronic pain patients, um, the, um, the mention of, um, of biomedical or psychological model of pain is uh, often too late and mm. also there are not enough treatments mm. um, based on that. Mm. And mm. I think you said it indirectly, but it's really difficult to help patients with chronic pain with mm. medical treatments and the physicians are aware of that and that psychological processes are involved. Yes. Mm. So very broadly speaking, just for anybody who's listening that doesn't know much about pain at all, Mm -hmm. how would we very broadly define chronic pain? Well, normally there is a very official definition uh, that is correlated with the duration of pain. Mm -hmm. So and the pain lasts longer than three months, depending on some definitions, or six months on most days of a week, then it's defined as chronic. It's, of Mm. course, a very basic definition. Uh, For us psychologists, it's also important that uh, there is some level of disability um, um, affected by pain because um, there's many people who have uh, chronic pain, but they cope well with it. Mm. They they stay active, they they go to work, uh, they have fulfilled lives. So for them, maybe that's not so important to, to make this definition of chronic pain mm. uh, just by uh, defining it time. Mm. Yeah, but the official definition is having pain for longer than mm. three or six months. Yeah, that has, but, a, mm. has an impact, a significant impact on your yes. function. Yeah, but it is a good question because it's not easy to, to define in patients either because mm. pain is often that it comes and goes like in episodes, yeah. uh, recurrent episodes. and But after a few years, it might never go away. Okay. So then, then it does turn into chronic. 
And are we talking mostly about things like lower back pain or different sorts of pain or...? Mainly musculoskeletal pain, hmm. yeah. It could be other types of pain hmm. as well. So you're working... Well, one of the things that you're here to discuss is working with exposure. And this is all, I guess, in this context of Stephen and Johan's uh, model. Could you tell us a little bit about that before we go into the... or how that relates to the exposure? Okay, so just what exposure is for, mm. for chronic pain. Um, by exposure, we mean that we ask patients to perform movements that they are afraid of doing um, and not to do it gradually, but to really dig into it. So if you're afraid of maybe uh, lifting a specific weight, then we try to confront this fear and to tell you, okay, just try to lift it and we ask you maybe to write down or to tell us your fears what might happen when mm. you do it and we evaluate what happened after that the main um, idea of exposure is to uh, change beliefs about harm about how, how harmful movements are and um, also to just make new experiences and to get more confidence in your body again mm. And um, why it's called exposure is because it's similar to exposure and anxiety disorders, for example, where we also uh, try starting with rather difficult tasks uh, in order to make a very impressive um, uh, Im impressive situation for the patient. So, so we don't like doing it like very gradually, like lifting one bottle and two bottles and mm. three bottles, because we mm. really have this strong experience of uh, of uh, seeing, okay, even when I do it and when I do something, I think it's very bad for me, my uh, back can take it and uh, maybe that's uh, the reason I should change uh, how yeah. I live, how I do things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the yeah. rationale behind it is that when you're suffering of pain, you limit your daily activities and your valued activities, so your life becomes more and more narrow mm -hmm. and you might avoid doing some things just because you're afraid that the pain will get worse and then you simply stop doing it and you haven't even tried doing those activities for five years mm -hmm. or ten years so it's one way of of broadening the spectra of activities that you can do and i guess there's probably some ideas that so reducing your activity or reducing your valued activity then feeds back on the experience of pain as well. Yeah, it feeds back on your mood, of course. Mm -hmm. So you tend to get low mood and also that could trigger more pain. Mm. Okay, so you have a really lovely vicious cycle here. <laughs> so um, can you tell us a little bit about doing exposure with clients? So what what's it like to do that with a client or what would you ask them to do? You've got some hierarchies there I can hear you talking about. But... Yes, exactly. So the first thing we do is uh, trying to find out what their valued goals are. So first we talk about what things do uh, they avoid and what things they would like to uh, start again, doing again in their daily lives. And then uh, one possibility is to show them pictures of uh, movements that might be avoided. This is uh, like an instrument, it's called FODA, Photos of Daily Activities. And is this to help detect what they're actually avoiding? Exactly, yeah, mm -hmm. okay. exactly. Because with avoidance, it's also like this in anxiety disorders. When people avoid things for a very long time, they normally forget mm. <laughs> what they avoid because they forget that these activities exist mm. uh, because they arrange their lives around them. And I think these 
these pictures are a very nice uh, instrument to show them several movements and things that could be avoided, and then they can sort them on a scale. And often, many patients don't label it as fear. Yes. I mean, it could be difficult to say that I'm afraid of doing this mm. activity. It's more that, no, I can't do it. I because can't do it, yeah. No, because then I'm going to be in the bed for two days, or I'm going to have more pain or whatever. Yes. So there's I, some catastrophizing. I would, ne- I would never do it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there's, there's exactly. some catastrophizing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Exactly. So this is a nice instrument. And also, uh, I think when um, we talk about the pictures, we get many information about uh, thoughts, uh, catastrophizing, for example, mm. or, or other ideas patients have. And after that, well, we uh, invite them to... Uh, uh, to decide whether they want to try something new, to try to uh, to confront themselves or not. And uh, for that, we use the valued goals. Um, so we kind of uh, let them decide, do I want to risk something in order to achieve maybe a better uh, quality of life? Mm. Or do I want to stay in, in the avoidance and not risking anything, but then also having a very low quality of, of mm. life and mm. not achieving my goals? So that is an important aspect, that the goal is not to lower the pain. The goal is rather to expand the... Uh, or to increase the life satisfaction and, and um, decrease uh, to to reduce the disability. Mm. Yeah. So, for example, I had one patient. If you want a patient example, yeah. so she was, um, uh, she loved wearing heels, high heels, and she felt like it's very bad, or she had this idea it's very bad for her back if uh, she does it. But she felt unhappy not doing this. Mm. I think not. So many patients would say this is the most important thing for me, but for her it was. Uh, also, like painting her nails um, was very important for her, and uh, she was avoiding that too at the toes because uh, yeah, she thought mm. that she might hurt her back. So for her, the first exposures uh, were at her valued goals were to to do that again. Mm. And we were running with her in high heels, everybody, also the therapists uh, <laughs> around the city, and we were just checking if her beliefs have been true. Mm. So for this patient. Uh, was a specific valued goal, just feeling great, wearing a specific kind of shoes. So that's what we did with her. Mm. And for other patients, there mm. are other goals. And mm. it's very important to have these goals. Otherwise, of course, you are not ready to risk uh, hurting your back. That's what they think mm. might happen <clears throat> in order maybe to do something that you don't like anyway. So for me, for example, the goal of washing the dishes would not be a value to a great <laughs> one. So you would not persuade me to do something I think is dangerous <laughs> just because I'm able then to, to clean my house again. Yeah. <laughs> that would not be so funny. But uh, yeah, for some patients it is an important goal yeah. too. Yeah. So. so you could frame it as like you are experimenting with your behavior to test your ideas yeah. or to test new behaviors that you haven't done for a long time. Yeah, also for therapists. So in our last study, we did the craziest things like running in high, high heels. It's not that crazy. But we also, for example, one therapist uh, went uh, shooting because uh, we had someone who loved hunting, but was afraid mm. of the backfire of okay. the gun because yeah. it could hurt your neck. Yeah. So for that, <laughs> they went shooting. But I expect this for us. Like yeah. One thing you could do. But uh, also playing soccer is very uh, popular yeah. uh, because it's something uh, many male patients are afraid of doing. But it's very, very important to them, especially when they have children. Like, you know, playing soccer with your son mm. is something, you know, like a value you would like to have again in your life. So we did it too. Fortunately, I- I'm very bad at soccer, <laughs> but <laughs> one therapist was very good at that. So... <clears throat> going to guess here that probably like some other problem areas, different anxiety disorders, people 
develop a range of safety behaviours or engage in avoidance that, um, how would I say it, perhaps is not that realistic or factual. They develop ideas about things that they need to do that cope that really don't hold out to be true. Yes. So I'm guessing that part of the exposure is about people discovering or testing out their hypotheses about how they manage their pain. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. So the idea is to test the hypothesis and with the goals just to be ready to do that and mm -hmm. to be also to be open for, for this um, uh, for the expectation uh, change. Some people are not open uh, for changing the expectations mm -hmm. and uh, even when uh, there is an expectation violation they are not ready to acknowledge that. Okay. So mm -hmm. it's important to prepare patients a little bit for, for, for this experience and together to, to find out mm -hmm. if the expectations have been uh, true or not. Mm -hmm. I would say that a very common uh, belief is that you should engage in like ergonomic lifting yes. or ergonomic movements. Would, would you like to say something about how to handle that? Yeah, that's a bit difficult because there is like the so-called old back school and it was maybe very popular in the 80s and in the 90s and people were told that several movements in their daily lives might be dangerous for the back. So there were like back schools and they were teaching people how to lift weights, for example. And this is all the lifting with straight backs and these exactly. things that we all think is a thing. Yeah. It's not a thing I've heard no, recently. Now it's lifting all... with a straight back is not a thing. You yeah. can lift however you want. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, and that, but it's in the heads. Uh, also sometimes of healthcare practitioners, of patients, mm. even my students, when I, when I show them exposures, videos, they are sometimes like, what? You're not supposed to do it like that mm. uh, yeah so that changed because now we know uh, of course there are um, sometimes when you work in a specific field you have to maybe be a bit careful how you do it but a mm. normal person just being in her daily or his daily life does not need to take speci specific precautions the back is very strong and it can take mm. all kinds of movements uh, as long as you move. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's more that these types of ergonomic movements have been developed to, to for very heavy exactly. lifting, for okay. instance, and then they have been generalized uh -huh. so that, um, I mean, yeah, to pick up a pen. Yeah. 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 So exactly. if you're doing Olympic squat, you may need to have a straight back, but if you're picking up your yes. shopping, you can... You might be stronger yeah. than... Yeah. <laughs> now, just thinking here that if you've got a, a person who... Um, has developed some pain and developed a whole range of strategies to try to protect themselves from pain, what they've probably been doing for a long period of time is mm -hmm. just reinforcing and confirming that what they're doing is right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I, um, and this is typical of other disorders as well, because I'm engaging in these safety behaviours or this avoidance, I'm surviving. So mm -hmm. it's negatively reinforced. Negatively reinforced. Yeah. So you have quite the task to start to overcome that if a person has spent many years building up evidence for their strategy. Yes. And how, how do the clinicians that are involved in this work deal with that or how do they manage to overcome it? Mm -hmm. I think uh, we have a bit of a problem with the validity of our studies because, of course, when I advertise a study, then the patients who come to participate in a study are often in this, uh, they are ready to change somehow. Okay. Yeah. They are not ready, of course, immediately to just... Uh, uh, let all the safety behaviors be, but they are somehow ready to do something about it. The uh, possibility that they the might need to do something different. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So. 
this is what happens when you have a treatment study. So we have in our last study, we had really nice results, really nice effect sizes, especially for exposure treatment. But you must keep in mind that, of course, there is a bias in such a study mm. because they voluntarily took part in okay. a study where they knew they will have to change behavior. <laughs> <laughs> and that's also the criticism we sometimes get because uh, pain patients are often in clinics where they are not voluntarily there. They are there because they want the early re retirement or something mm. like that. And uh, they, they are there and that's m probably more difficult to persuade them uh, to try something like exposures. Mm. That's definitely a problem. Mm. Uh, but then maybe uh, there's like a new trend using motivational interviewing before okay. psychological treatments. I think nobody tried it yet in, for pain, but I think that might be a nice idea mm. uh, to first to enhance the motivation, the readiness to change and, and then start offering treatments like that. So that hasn't been mm. done? I don't know of a study in pain for in pain. using motivational interviewing. I know uh, of studies in, for example, generalized anxiety. Yes. So it's, of course, yeah. very familiar, uh, famous for um, uh, uh, for all kinds of uh, alcohol problems. Yes. But now, nowadays, people start doing it like, I know one study on generalized anxiety disorder, and I think others, yeah. and that nice results. Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, at follow-up uh, after treatment, when people had uh, motivational interviewing before, the uh, results of treatment maintained at follow-up. Yeah. So they were keeping up with, uh, with doing exposures after treatment. Mm. And for anyone who's listening that doesn't know what motivational interviewing is, it in, in a nutshell, it's basically about acknowledging ambivalence for change. Mm. So that is um, acknowledging the pros and cons of mm. changing something. So here, I guess you're, you're talking about acknowledging the benefits of the way the person is managing their pain or mm. even possibly the benefits of being in pain yes. uh, versus the costs. Mm. Exactly. And I would say that our uh, recent study, the, which we called the hybrid, there we included motivational interviewing techniques to increase the motivation for engaging in exposure. Mm. Yeah, then tell, tell us more about it. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've seen in, in like usually or, or classic exposure treatments for pain-related fear and pain problems, we've seen that some patients seem to not benefit from the treatment and those are usually the highly distressed mm -hmm. patients. Uh, and because of that, we created this hybrid manual where we combined techniques from dialectical behavior therapy and motivational interviewing with exposure for, for pain-related fear, just to get those like difficult patients along mm -hmm. or to, yeah, in one way, both to validate their experiences mm -hmm. and to provide them with techniques to handle the distress that comes up during okay. exposure. So you had a group of people whose distress levels were getting so high that it was interfering with yes. the learning that would take place in an exposure experience. Yeah. Yep. Uh, okay, so you're trying to yeah, you're trying to bring the distress level down so this learning process can connect. Yeah, so it. that they can engage in the exposure. Yeah. Mm. Um, okay. yeah. So the study is about to be published in the journal called Pain. I yes. think about this or next week. So yeah. check it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, you were presenting some research for us earlier today in the department, and maybe you could tell us about some of your 
recent studies or? Uh, so uh, we moved a little bit into doing also single case experimental design studies because we think that it's very interesting to look at processes during treatment and not to miss so many um, data. We miss normally when we then just create a mean and leverage mm -hmm. and an effect size. So we're talking about following one or a limited number of people and comparing themselves against their own baselines as opposed to graping, taking groups of people mm -hmm. and comparing groups. Studying them continuously, <clears throat> just mm. both before and during treatments, to yeah. study processes during treatments. Yeah. And in the recent study that was recently published, we found out that uh, in exposure treatment, the changes occur quite fast. So after one or two exposures, so many variables already change for patients. And in uh, other psychological treatments, there are also changes, but they take much more time, which is very interesting experience. And also from a clinician's point of view, it's something I really experienced uh, working with patients. I was just about to say that I would recognize that from working with yes. anxiety patients, mm. where whether it be a hierarchy or some experiments where um, there's some initial learning and then it really takes off very quickly. It's yeah. not so gradual. Mm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it changes exactly. very, very, once it changes, it changes very, very quickly. Yeah, that's mm. also a very, very interesting subject of when mm. changes happen in psychological treatments and when they should happen or otherwise maybe the treatment is just not working. Mm. So in exposure, they, they happen quite, quite fast. I also mm. had a hypothesis, but it was nice to see it in the data. And not only avoidance variables, many others changed uh, quite fast. Mm. Mm. And I would say that that is a step forward in the exposure literature because we have been working with exposure for I don't know about 20 almost 20 years now mm -hmm. but and it seemed to be effective but not for all patients and yeah. we don't really know how uh, how are, are the changes um, how, how do they come and how, how are the processes so therefore the type of research that you've done is important thank you <laughs> <laughs> and we are planning now a big study um, including several centers in Germany um, who provide psychological treatment for pain and we would like to have a really nice high number like around 360 patients um, yeah, doing exposure treatment and this time we will not have inclusion criteria so we have hope to really identify predictors um, mm. of successful exposure and really find groups of patients who are uh, eligible for exposure who are, m might benefit most from exposure. This can be done only when you don't have inclusion criteria. When you have them, then you limit your variance and the variables. That means that there are already many things you know about the patients are restricted. Mm. So now we try to include patients without any further um, restrictions in order to see um, which group of patient is really a good group to offer them um, exposure treatment. Uh, and this can only be done with multi-center studies because you need a very large number of participants. Okay. Maybe you would like to say something about uh, the plans that we have together. <laughs> ah, the, 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 the first plan or the second plan? Both, maybe. Both. <laughs> yeah. Plan A and plan B. Yeah. Plan A. <laughs> so uh, my visit has been very productive already uh, for our first plan. Plan A is to, we have uh, data from four RCTs on exposure treatment that has been done already and one of them was done in my group and one of them was done here. So we also talked to colleagues from other groups and we will merge the data from the um, all exposure treatments and that also will, will give us a larger number of participants in order to look again at, for example, predictors of treatment success. 
and other things like moderators maybe. And what we also want to have a look at are dropouts, so patients who refuse to do this treatment or drop out from treatment. We, that's very difficult when you have small sample sizes to really find out what the reason could be when you have just 10 patients. But when we have more of them, uh, by combining the studies, we hope to gain more information about yeah. that. So when we, we will look at who benefits from exposure and who, yeah. who doesn't, doesn't yeah. who isn't helped by the exposure treatments. Exactly, and uh, probably one day there will be a simple way to tell which patient might rather be exposed to movements and which patient maybe needs another form of treatment, mm. like mm. a hybrid uh, protocol or a completely different type of psychological treatment maybe. And plan B is uh, to extend the knowledge we have on exposures in adults to children. Okay. Um, it's, it has been done a little bit, but there's no big RCT on that. And uh, we know a lot about mechanisms of fear avoidance and pain in children, and they are very similar to mechanisms in adults. Mm. One could say, okay, but what's with the back pain? So children do not typically, small children do not typically have uh, problems with, uh, I don't know, lifting something. Mm. They have mm. rather uh, abdominal pain or headache, but the avoidance is the same. So when okay. they have headaches mm. or abdominal mm. pains, they don't go to school. They avoid all mm. kinds of recreational activities, social activities due to pain so it's uh, worth uh, trying um, also kind of exposure bait therapy and and, and what we do know is that uh, parents reactions and parents involvement is very important here so if the parents are catastrophizing about the kids um, pain the the children tend to be more passive and and so on avoiding more Exactly. So what I hope tomorrow <laughs> that the group here will help me to design like a first draft of a manual or something like that mm. uh, in order to uh, consider all these aspects uh, for a first try of such a such a treatment in, in Germany. So one part would be, of course, working with children uh, and doing exposures with them. And the other one will be discussing how to involve their parents. We cannot make this treatment too big because then maybe people won't participate. Mm. But there, there are many aspects we have to take care of. So uh, yeah, that's why it's great to be here because there are so many experts <laughs> and <laughs> I hope to uh, come up with a solution tomorrow mm. maybe. <laughs> I can ask the two of you this. Where do you, what's going to be the next big thing in pain research? Where do you think this is all going? What, what a good question. Yeah. Well, where would you like it to go? I think that we will look more at the combination of like physiology and psychology. There is already some research, but I think that it will come more. That is one aspect. Yes. Um, For me, it's the dissemination of our mm. knowledge. I mm. feel like there's a huge gap between what we do in, in the lab anyways, but also in uh, our uh, clinics. So in Landau, um, we have an um, outpatient uh, psychotherapy clinic, and there we try all kinds of new treatments, and all is going well, but it's really not comparable to what sometimes happens like somewhere else. Mm. Mm. Um, so I feel like, yeah, communicating more what mm. we do, which is a good idea what we're do doing here already. And Yeah, to also get rid of them, all these misinterpretations yes. around chronic pain, mm -hmm. um, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, and so on. 
um, towards a more psychological model or the psychological understanding of the pain. Mm. That is also one aspect. And to refine the, the treatments, I yes. would say, like, like you said today in the seminar, that nowadays CBT is used like a big, I don't know, trash can or mm. whatever it's cbt can be everything mm. and everyone says that they are working with cbt techniques yeah. and i would like us to be more stringent or to work with like behavioral anal analysis and then apply the treatments according to mm. what is this uh, the problem of specifically this patient exactly i think that's that should be the future to make shorter treatments, more effective treatments, and mm. treatments that are tailored to patients' needs. Mm. For that, we have to know patients' needs. We have to tailor the treatments, but the mm -hmm. biggest problem is that you have to implement all these ideas and all this research uh, into really daily uh, care of yeah. patients. And mm. I think uh, we don't have implementation studies, really, uh, in chronic pain. We have um, efficacy and effectiveness mm. studies. Efficacy mm. studies are studies that look at specific treatment mechanisms and find out is it effective like in the lab and then effectiveness studies is more is it effective in the field when someone do it, does it but mm. there are no studies how to implement for example the great hybrid manual you have into one big rehabilitation clinic mm. uh, somewhere in the south of Germany yeah. mm. how to make all the nurses and all the doctors and all the psychologists stick to to this treatment protocol mm. Um, mm. how to measure if it's effective in in the field I think uh, this should be the future of pain because we have so many ideas and and more and more knowledge but it does not translate always to the uh, to the field so no, and, mm. Yeah, and related to that, I would say that the treatments also need to be including biopsychosocial perspective mm. and that all modalities or like all treatment professionals are working towards the same goal because here in Sweden, multimodal rehabilitation is the main recommended uh, treatment for chronic pain. Does and, it actually happen though? Uh, I'm just thinking, how much is, is this actually implemented at the moment? Yeah, yeah, sure. They get many modalities, but not always working towards the same goal, okay. I would say. <laughs> so many professionals, but not always the same message yeah, to okay. the patients. Exactly. I think that's something very important, like message, like when a whole system has to have the same message. Mm. And that's what's not happening very often. Like when they go to the physical therapy in the morning, they get a, a message, yeah, you could maybe be a bit more careful or swimming is always a problem. They get uh, uh, told that they are. Uh, it's very dangerous uh, to uh, not to swim on your back and just swim on your back when you have back pain. So this like uh, this message mm. is probably creating uh, fear avoidance. Yeah. And then an hour later, they go to the psychologist and he's, oh, here's the fear avoidance mode. <laughs> I would like to present you mm. this. Uh, please do that. And in the afternoon, they have like whatever yoga, meditation, and then there's slightly different message. And I would be very confused at the end of the day. And I'm sure patients are too. So I think mm. this is one of the problems. We have much to offer, but mm. it's not offered in a systematic and scientific way. Yeah. And we know what happens when people get mixed conflicting messages yes. from, from a, a health service or an organisation is they disregard future mm. information. So then they, mm. I guess, go back to doing their own avoidance and safety behaviours yeah. to manage their pain because exactly. they no longer want to listen to health services because they're giving mm. mixed messages. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's very, uh, it costs a lot of money. Yeah. 
So implementation <laughs> research, like going somewhere and implementing really uh, treatment mm -hmm. protocols into a whole system of a huge clinic is a big undertaking. But I think we should write more grants uh, about that. And I think we should apply for money for that. And yeah. not just doing one and, and, and another and another and another small study in our groups. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's great to do it. I like doing, doing it. But, mm. um, but then we will not spread the message. <laughs> how receptive are... Well, how receptive is the traditional medical profession to a more psychological model? In pain, I I must say I'm I'm also working uh, with uh, so I'm I'm a supervisor for CBT and clinical psychologist, so I'm working with all kinds of patients and um, supervising all kinds of treatments. And my second area of interest is OCD, and I must say that compared to some some fights psychiatrists and psychologists tend to have with one another. Mm -hmm. I feel like in the pain community, there's a lot of respect uh, also for the psychologists and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So it's rather most of the time, at least in the scientific community, this feeling of, uh, yeah, we, <laughs> we have still big problems. We have to solve mm -hmm. them together. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I would say so too, that like physicians of pain doctors yeah. who worked in the field for, for a long time, they often see that it's so difficult to help these patients. Mm -hmm. They're often yeah, tended to be viewed as difficult patients because they are frustrated, of mm. course, because they have a lot of pain. And I would say that these pain physicians often see the value of psychology mm -hmm. and the psychological perspective and how to communicate with the patient. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so that's maybe not the problem, but the mm problem is rather this whole system and also mm. maybe people who so we have we talk a lot to people in our scientific community so mm. again a bubble <laughs> and there are much more people out there um, working just daily with pain patients mm. and probably mm. not get, not uh, listening to the newest results and mm. you know not implementing mm. newest uh, for, for instance it's still keeping on teaching like the back school yes. message for instance. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. So outside of exposure for pain, what else will you be doing in the near future? You've got some other areas that you're interested in. Um, yeah, so my uh, other hobby is uh, placebo research. Mm -hmm. uh, placebo research has been done a lot in the context of pain. And I think we can learn from placebo research a lot also for psychological treatments because it is just amazing how big the role of expectation mm. and also of conditioning and of uh, the relationship between a doctor and a patient is and how how big the effects are that can just be created uh, when you have the right dosage of a good doctor-patient relationship, mm. um, when you work with a patient's expectations, mm. and uh, when you consider that there is some a thing called Pavlovian conditioning, so that the context is also important for, for patients to react in a specific way. Mm. So uh, taking this together, I think uh, this is a very fascinating field of research. We don't know much about placebo. Uh, we, know, we know that there is a big placebo um, effect or responses mm. in the field of pain, but we do not know so much about the mechanism, so there's so much to do. One field that is very interesting is the open-label placebo. It has been uh, recently discovered that uh, even when people know that they have a, get a placebo, they can get better. Okay. It, it has been shown up to now 
uh, which makes sense in people with a chronic uh, problems because when you have problems uh, like on the daily basis and you take a pill that is called placebo on a daily basis maybe you have some fluctuations of the problem anyway and then maybe you start noticing changes and this okay. makes something with you and maybe that's um, the expectations or maybe that's about hope it's a very interesting aspect of mm -hmm. the placebo mm -hmm. uh, mechanism how much is it about hope and what is hope anyway and uh, mm -hmm. what what does it mean for clinical psychologists mm -hmm. so all these things are very interesting and I think after we understand them more we can uh, translate them into um, how we deal with patients and one thing for example is that when patients in a hospital receive medication they often are not told what they receive they just get a box of pills take mm. that <laughs> so we know that 50 percent of the um, effectiveness of opioids are due to uh, to placebo effects mm. so 50 percent is the effect of the medication around and another 50 maybe is uh, just the additional effect of expectation and things like that mm. so you lose 50 percent of the efficacy of a drug by just not uh, explaining it's uh, it's a drug it's going to work like this and that mm. and we expect your pain to be lower and maybe doing it in a warm and nice situation with the patient mm. uh, to enhance the good doctor-patient relationship and mm. all of this uh, is helping patients. Mm. It's so nice that you are like uh, framing placebo as something good which we can use yes. and w in a positive way because often it's used like oh it's probably just in a, a placebo effect yes. but it's really as you as you frame it uh, creating hope and engagement and uh, optimism yeah. Yeah, in, yeah. in the patients. Placebo is maybe a bad w bad word for this. So what mm -hmm. I'm interested in is the mechanisms. Why something uh, that has not any ingredient works, and it works because of psychological mechanisms mm -hmm. of a relationship between two people, mm -hmm. of of expectations and of conditioning. So, uh, very important things. Everybody forgets in the medical field. <laughs> yeah. And interestingly, placebo research is always interesting for everybody so everybody wants to hear more about it mm. so it's also like a good method to spread the message because when I say mm. I'm go going to give a talk about back pain then maybe five people come <laughs> when I say I will do a spectacular talk about <laughs> placebo effects then I have like 300 people coming <laughs> the message is the same <laughs> I'm yeah. not having anything else in both talks uh, it's how to use psychological knowledge, psychological mechanisms in order to enhance um, well-being of people. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, but this message is, is heard too, and all newspapers want to do um, all kinds of uh, yeah, interviews on placebo effects. So it's uh, for us also a vehicle to, to transport the message, mm. how important it is to deal with a patient in a specific way. Mm. So this is something I'm I'm really interested mm -hmm. um, in right now, and we are doing more laboratory studies, uh, basic studies, but we also always think about the translation of the results to um, to the practice mm. and to how to deal with patients. Okay. I'm just aware of the time, so I'm just thinking that I know you've got a very nice website, your research group. What was the address for that? If anybody wants to check out a bit further, what yeah. you're doing. So we are, we are doing pain and uh, psychotherapy research, and mm. we called ourselves uh, Pain and Psychotherapy uh, Research Lab, University of Landau, you can find it there. Mm. And we are also now setting up all kinds of free materials on our website. So, for example, treatment manuals in English also, in German and in English, and useful videos you can uh, download from our website. And also just stay tuned uh, about what are we doing and the newest studies. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Julia. Thank you, Ida. Thank you, Leo.